Greetings from Christchurch. Great to be with you, by the way, here in Dunedin. It's a bit colder than I expected, but never mind. You can't have, every, you can't have everything. Uh, but I bring you greetings from Christchurch, and I was talking to the uh, bishop about two nights ago and he, uh, that I was coming down here, and he told me to tell you he, had a, he remembers a great time down here, and he told me to pass on his best for you. I also want you to know, as a congregation, because you must feel something uh, sort of out of it sometimes down in Dunedin. I don't mean that, um, but you, uh, I think you are the only FC church down here. That, that's right, isn't it? So you must feel sometimes... Uh, as if you're on your own. You are not alone. You're prayed weekly, you're prayed for weekly in some church, in Christ Church and further afield. So you're not on your own, brothers and sisters. Uh, so it's great. I know you've been through a tough year, a uh, tough 18 months really, uh, but you're not on your own. You're being prayed for and cared for. So I need to, I need to pass on those, uh, those wishes. Just very quickly before I pray, uh, I wanted those two readings done because I'm preaching from the first uh, uh, few verses which were read. But the second uh, reading is about when Paul was in Corinth. And I wanted you particularly to understand that he was there for 18 months. And it says that he taught the people for 18 months uh, when he stayed there. When he goes away, he hears there's some problems, and so he writes back. And when he writes, the, when he writes this letter, 1 Corinthians back, he is answering some of their questions. You'll notice when you, when he, as you go through, read through um, uh, Paul's letter uh, first to the Corinthians. He says, in chapter 7, he says, now about marriage, for example. In chapter 12, now about spiritual gifts. And then earlier on, now about the things that you wrote about. So they're writing to him with some issues that they've got. He's heard that there's division in the church. They've wrote to him about some things, and he's answering some of these things, but also taking them to task for some of the things where they're going wrong. That's the, the background to... Um, uh, to 1 Corinthians. And in the section, I'm only doing part of a section this morning, but the whole section is from chapter 1 to uh, chapter 3, I think, uh, where Paul is contrasting human wisdom with God's wisdom. And the inference is they're taking on human wisdom. So they've been, they've been converted, they're Christians, uh, they love Christ, but they've swung away from this uh, other stuff, which is human wisdom. And we'll, we'll, you'll see why as we go in. So, let me pray. May the words of my lips and the thoughts and meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord God, our Creator and Redeemer. Amen. If you've got your Bibles open at that First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, that would be helpful, but read it when you get home if you can't. Uh, some years ago, I heard a sermon uh, once. I went to a special, uh, it was a special Christian gathering for some reason, I can't remember what it was. Uh, and I heard a sermon by a minister there who was a very gifted speaker and a very good storyteller. He was a very interesting storyteller. He could tell, tell stories from the Bible. He'd uh, embellish some of the stories from the Bible. And in this particular sermon uh, that, he, that he was preaching, he took a passage from the Old Testament and with his knowledge of Jewish customs and festivals and traditions, he gave a very interesting talk for about 40 minutes. And he weaved this uh, passage to really say what he wanted to say. It was very skillfully done. It was very interesting. It was very engaging, even a little bit exciting. But the problem was, it had very little to do with what the passage was actually teaching. And the disappointing thing for me was, most of the Christians there, and many of the, many of the Christians there were Anglican ministers, uh, and from other denominations too, but most of them there thought it was wonderful. 
They thought it was a wonderful sermon. As we were going out, people were saying, wasn't that wonderful? He's just a marvelous storyteller, isn't he? Just, I didn't know things were in that passage, etc., etc., etc. There was no discernment about the passage at all or what it meant. Now, sadly, a lot of preaching is like that today in churches. Not all churches, but in many churches. And this kind of thing was happening in the church at Corinth. And it was causing division. Chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, that there may be no division amongst you. There was division. This was causing division. And as I said, Paul, in chapters 1 and 2, has been tackling this issue of what's being preached, or rather, what is not being preached properly. And in these verses that we're looking at this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul reminds them about when he was there and what he preached while he was with them. And he says three things, what he preached, how he preached, and why. Let's go through them. Firstly, so what did Paul preach? Verse 1, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. The Greek actually says, I, for my part, didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom, meaning some preachers did come like that preaching with eloquence and superior wisdom. And why did they come like that? Well, they were influenced greatly by their culture, by Greek culture. You see, Greek culture, the people in that culture then, in that society, loved good orators, good speakers. Clever, wordy, public speakers were admired and idolized in that culture. There was no television, there was no radio, and so good orators were sort of entertainment. Just let me remind you about when Paul, in the book of Acts, goes to uh, Athens. He goes to Athens in in Acts chapter 17, and it says in verse 21, listen to what it says, chapter 21, verse 21, all the Greeks who live there spend their whole time listening to and talking about the latest ideas. (laughs) That's what it was. These philosophers were just spouting, that's what they listened to. They were idolized. And the cleverer the philosophy or ideas they brought, and the more eloquently they spoke, the more popular they were. It's hard for us in 21st century Western culture to realize the influence of these Greek orators. They influenced all parts of society. Politics, business, the legal profession, philosophy, religion, all, all areas of society. They say that Winston Churchill and Lloyd George, those great politicians of the, 19th, uh, of the 20th century, they said that those two particularly were great orators and they influenced British Parliament greatly by their talks. Well, that's what Greek society was like. Rhetorical oratory was powerful and Greeks were absolutely obsessed with it. And this oratory came into the church. Preachers started preaching like that. And the congregation wanted to hear preachers like that. They wanted the excitement, etc. But Paul knew that, A, it wouldn't convert true people to faith. Only true preaching would. And, B, it wouldn't grow Christians spiritually mature. In fact, the opposite would happen. In chapter 3, verse 1... Paul is still on about the same thing, and he, uh, he's still on about the same issue, and he says, I can't speak to you as spiritual. I can't speak to you as spiritual, but worldly, mere infants in Christ. 
Some of, them, some of these Corinthians had been Christians for a long time, but they were still spiritually immature. Babes. Which, verse 3, their arguing and bickering and boasting demonstrated that they were spiritually immature. And Paul says, I didn't come with this eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. So how did he come? What did he preach? Verse 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him, cru him crucified. Paul didn't preach to entertain people. Paul didn't preach to show how clever he was or to manipulate people. He preached the testimony about God, which was Jesus Christ and Him crucified, what he called in chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross, Jesus Christ crucified. Now, while he was with them for 18 months, that's not all he taught on, of course. He taught on Christian love, chapter 13. He, he taught on uh, spiritual gifts, chapter, chapter, 11 and, uh, chapter 12 and 14. He, he taught on marriage, chapter 7. He taught on the resurrection, chapter 15, the Lord's Supper, Christian giving, evangelism. He taught all those things. But it all centered in and flowed out of Jesus dying on a cross to save us. That was the heart of everything. Brothers and sisters, Clever, amusing, exciting storytelling sermons with little content may appeal to people's self-centered pleasure-seeking in that culture, and it will appeal to immature Christians in the church. It did in Corinth 2,000 years ago, and it does in our culture, but it doesn't sit with the cross of Calvary. Paul preached the simple cross-centered gospel, and that's what we need to get back to as churches. Don't be influenced by the culture. We preach Christ crucified and everything flowing out of that. Secondly, how Paul preached, that is, his manner in presenting the gospel and the result. Verse 3, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. Now the word weakness here doesn't mean physical weakness. It was more emotional. In 2 Corinthians Paul says a number of things about himself. He talks about personally about himself. And, and he says things like, he feels inadequate for the task that he's been given by God. He says that his physical appearance isn't impressive. He doesn't have a powerful presence, he says. He's been a tent maker. He's been persecuted. He also didn't preach like the orators of the day to butter people up. And, and to, make them, to, to get them pleased. He preached the simple gospel, which was hard work. It was mentally and spiritually exhausting. And all those things, from a human perspective in that culture, consi was considered a weakness. So Paul says that he comes in weakness. But why does he say that he comes in fear and trembling? What did Paul fear? Well, it's not easy to explain but it's a spiritual fear. <clears throat> it is a spiritual battle. You see, for the gospel to succeed in Corinth or anywhere, Paul knows that he mustn't rely on his own skills. He must trust God. And for a man of Paul's intellect and skills and ability and sinfully wanting people to admire him when he spoke, it is difficult to trust God. Paul naturally is a gifted, intelligent, persuasive man. He is an academic. 
And it's difficult to put those things aside and trust God with the simple gospel. To present the true gospel, he must resist the temptation to say and do things which will flatter him or get people to follow Jesus Christ by his own persuasive skills. He must resist these temptations to push self and come in humility, weak in self and trusting in God. That's how he must come. Which, as I say, is hard for a gifted, able, intellectual like Paul. And so he fears that he won't trust God. It's important that you see that. Do you see that? Any true preacher knows what Paul is speaking about here. Any true preacher knows this spiritual struggle when he's preaching. The temptation to flatter self and preach what people's itching ears want to hear. It's difficult to resist that. And that's Paul. His fear is that he won't trust God. On top of that, Paul also knows the power and the pull of Corinthian culture. Paul knows the many beliefs and the false religions in that culture, and he knows that they are powerful to just suck people in, just as we can get sucked in by our stuff. And Paul, as intellectually gifted as he is, he hasn't the power to defeat those things spiritually. He cannot do it. But God can do it. There's only one thing that can break through all those deeply ingrained beliefs, cultures, practices, and traditions, and it's not Paul's abilities. It's the gospel. Only the clear gospel will break through that. And he knows the temptation to try and water it down or put frills around it to make it seem more attractive, like the culture. And although he knows that the frills won't break through, it is tempting because that's what people like. And that's what preachers like. We like to be admired. Isn't Wally wonderful? And people like the exciting oratory exciting stories with healings and this and that and the other. And Paul fears that he'll move from the simple gospel and says what, tickled Paul, what tickles people's ears. As I say, every true preacher who stands in a pulpit knows exactly what Paul is battling with here. He knows it. Fear of flattering self and depending on one's own skills, clever, witty sermons with exciting stories rather than trusting God's simple gospel. Every preacher knows the temptation. And that's what Paul means by coming in fear and trembling. It is a spiritual battle. And what was the result of Paul preaching in that way? What resulted? Verse 4, My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That is the result of true preaching, a demonstration of the Spirit's power, which, by the way, doesn't mean miracles or healings. And I say that because I heard a preacher once, he was preaching about uh, miracles, and, he, and what he said was that, that preaching without miracles was only half the gospel. And he used this verse... Or part of the, that was part of his justification for it. This verse was part of his justification for it. And so what he said was, Paul preached, then there was a miracle or a healing, uh, like in the book of Acts, which was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. You may have heard something like that. 
No. That's not what Paul means here. Paul is talking about the results of true preaching. The results of true preaching. When Paul was in Corinth for those 18 months, what happened when he preached the gospel in fear and trembling? What happened? Well, the Corinthians were converted. And a wonderful, loving church fellowship began. Yes, they're going through difficulties now, but it was a loving fellowship. The church was a loving fellowship. That began. Their conversion and changed lives as individuals, as a church, were a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Do you see that? And it's exactly the same today. Do you want to see a demonstration of the Spirit's power right now? Have a look around this room. Every Christian here is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's what it is. And I am. When I spoke earlier, I am a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's not boasting. Believe me, I would never have become a Christian but for God's power. My life would never have changed but for God's power. I would never keep faith day after day but for God's power. I'm too weak. I'm too gullible. I'm too easily persuaded by philosophical nonsense philosophical ideas which come in this culture with all these cultural beliefs and stuff that's all around us all the stuff that comes at us I'm too convinced sometimes with atheism or universalism or all religions are the same or everybody is God's children whether it's this one we all worship the same God they're too powerful people would batter down my arguments against, regarding Christianity I just couldn't keep faith if it wasn't for God's power even with God's power, my faith is often hanging on by a fingernail. I often have doubts and questions. I ask God's forgiveness constantly for my doubts. I couldn't persevere in faith, neither could you. But you do. In the face of an unbelieving society today which gets more and more anti-Christian, you continue in faith. When your friends or family don't believe as you do, you continue in your faith, and that is difficult. When the hits come in your life, when the trials and the difficulties and the disappointments and the betrayals of your friends or people, when you suffer illness or, or whatever, in the face of these, you keep faith. That is the power of God. And in the face of your own failures and your own temptations and your own doubts, you keep going in faith. And that is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. God brought you to faith. He strengthens you to live the faith day after day. And He will keep you in faith. And in the end, He will bring you home through faith. That is God's power. So do you follow the sequence? When the gospel is preached without flowery embellishment or exciting stories or trying to show off one's cleverness and without emotionally trying to manipulate people or, or trying to add things to the gospel or not preaching things which we think are unpopular, judgment and sin, etc. When the, no, when the testimony about God, the gospel is simply preached, Jesus Christ crucified for our sin, and when the preacher trusts God and not their own skills, then God will bless it. Souls will be saved. You will see a demonstration of the Spirit's power in the work of the lives of people.
That is the sequence. And it doesn't happen quickly. The one thing I've learned in ministry for after 40 years is God is not in a hurry. Wally Behan's always in a hurry. God is never in a hurry. And in one sense, the results are not up to us. The results are God's territory. Our concern is to be faithful, to be faithful preachers, and hear and listen to and try to live to God's word faithfully. That's our task. Thirdly, very quickly, why did Paul preach this way and not as others did? Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Rest on here means grounded in, the basis of their faith. If their faith had been grounded in man's wisdom, or on the preacher's persuasive talks, or threats, or manipulation, then it's unlikely to, to be true faith, and may not last. Or, they'll remain spiritually immature. Just like the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, remain spiritually immature. And it's exactly the same today. If yours and my faith is to persevere and grow and be alive and healthy and mature, it has to be true faith. And it must not be grounded on nor continue to rest on man's wisdom. It must be, verse 4, on God's power. We need care in the, today in the church in New Zealand because much preaching is centered on man's wisdom in different ways. With liberalism, it's preaching on social issues, gender issues, sexuality issues, race issues, oppression issues, this issue, that issue, which in the end always causes disunity. And always, in the end, will, will result in emptying churches, which we're seeing dying church. It's wonderful to see a healthy congregation here. Wonderful. Not just because of numbers, just healthy to see. But churches will die and they're dying now. That's liberalism. But even evangelicals today need care. Us. To try and make the gospel sort of more attractive, more nicer to people, the gospel message today is often, by evangelicals, often, not always, but often, God loves you and he's got a plan for your life. Or, our greatest need is God. Uh, you, you've, got, you've got no purpose in life, your life is not satisfying, you're unfulfilled, etc. And so come to God and you'll be fulfilled. You'll have a happier life if you become a Christian. You'll have peace in your life. That's often the gospel today, or something like it. And that becomes the ground of people's faith. But you see, ultimately, those messages are centered on self. They are the prosperity gospel coming in the back door. It's all about me. It's not on God, it's not on Jesus Christ centered. It's on me and my happiness. I read recently that Sonny Bill Williams became a Muslim for those reasons. And what he said in this article in the paper was, he said that life wasn't good for him, life was going nowhere, had no purpose in life, he'd had some terrible times in rugby with drinking and all this kind of stuff, and so he became Muslim. And in this article he said, now life is great. He said, I'm happy, I'm more fulfilled, I'm this, that and the other. Notice everything is centered on him. And evangelicals, us, 
often present the gospel in similar ways. No. No, those things may be true for a Christian. Of course we have purpose in life. Of course we do. Of course we become more fulfilled. Of course we do. Of course we have those things. But they are not the ground of our faith. We are sinful people. We have offended a holy God. But God's Son, Jesus Christ, came and took the punishment, the death for the sin which we deserve for rejecting God. He died on a cross to save us. He died for me. And if we put our faith in Him, we are saved from the judgment of God and we come to know God and we come to love Him and we come to live for Him and He becomes the center. True faith is grounded in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Brothers and sisters, please pray that that would always be the center of all our preaching. Pray for Stu. Pray for other preachers in this church. Pray for, pray for preachers throughout Dunedin and throughout New Zealand. In your own congregation, pray for the Sunday school teachers, that that's what they will teach, that that will be the center of all they preach. Pray for the Bible study groups. Pray for your young adults group, who are so important today. Pray for them. Pray for their leaders, that they will teach them the cross of Christ. And pray that we would all know Jesus Christ and that the message of the cross which saves us. That's what Paul is saying here, and that's what we need to get back to. God bless your fellowship. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this great apostle. We thank you that he cared for his congregation. We cared for his people. No matter what was going on in the world, he cared for his people. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us Help, help us to remain central to the cross of Christ. Help us not to be ashamed or embarrassed. Help us to love people, show people the love of Christ in everything we do and say. But keep us grounded, we pray, in the message of the cross. And all these things we ask in our Lord's name. Amen.